Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On June 21st, 1947, timber salvager Harold Dahl drove his tugboat through the Puget Sound in Seattle, Washington. With him was his son, Charles, their dog, and two other crewmen. They were searching for timber logs that had fallen off barges. At 2 p.m., as they made their way toward Maury Island, Harold's eyes were blinded by a sudden bright light. Confused, he stepped away from the steering wheel and out of the wheelhouse, gazing toward the sky directly above him. His eyes widened in astonishment. The light belonged to six donut-shaped flying objects, Five of them were orbiting around the sixth. They all hovered about 2,000 feet in the air, directly above his tugboat. Suddenly, the donut-shaped object in the center began to descend. Harold and his crew were transfixed, unable to move as this strange-looking object inched closer and closer. When it was within 500 feet of them, they heard a sudden dim thud. And then, a rocky black substance began to rain down on their heads. Horrified, Harold and his crew ran for cover. They could scarcely comprehend what was happening to them. But they knew one thing. This vessel was not from planet Earth. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. 
But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered thousands, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Today marks the start of our exploration into the Mount Rainier and Maury Island incidents, the first documented cases of UFO sightings in the United States. This week, we'll learn about Kenneth Arnold, Harold Dahl, and Fred Chrisman, three men who claim to have seen UFOs mere days apart and less than 100 miles away from each other. Next week, we'll conclude with Arnold's strange investigation into the sightings and the suspicious deaths of two military intelligence officers. We'll also explore some alternate theories as to what these men experienced. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. You can find all previous episodes of Extraterrestrial, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. On June 24th, 1947, recreational pilot Kenneth Arnold saw nine flying saucers near Mount Rainier in Washington. That UFO sighting ultimately changed the course of his life. Arnold was born on March 29, 1915, and was, as his daughter later described, a nuts-and-bolts realist. He really believed there were explanations for things. This may have been what drew him to aviation from a young age. He enjoyed that what was once thought of as magic had been made possible through science and engineering. By the time he was 32, in 1947, planes were his full-time occupation. He was an employee of Idaho Search and Rescue Mercy Flights. On Tuesday, June 24th, he was flying in his Call Air A2 single-engine airplane heading toward Mount Rainier. He was searching for a missing C-46. There was a $5,000 reward for whoever found the airplane, and Arnold figured he'd be the one to collect. A little after 2 p.m., Arnold flew over the town of Mineral, Washington, not far from the base of Mount Rainier. As he was making a 180-degree turn, Arnold was suddenly struck with a blinding light that illuminated the entire cockpit. Scared, Arnold jerked the plane up, thinking that the light was a reflection from another plane close by. After straightening out, he scanned his surroundings he didn't see any other aircraft. Arnold's mind began to race. There had to be something else out here. Perhaps it was some Joker lieutenant in a P-51 Mustang giving him a buzz job across his nose. But just as he was thinking that, the bright light flashed again. This time, Arnold managed to follow where the light came from. It was directly in front of him near Mount Baker, 200 miles away. What had at first appeared to be one light was actually multiple lights. They made up a jagged line. But, and this is what truly confused him, the lights were flying at an incredible speed, faster than anything Arnold had ever seen. He counted nine of the lights flying in a formation like a flock of geese. His mind started racing again, calculating and recalculating. The formation had to be about five miles long. 
They could be jets, but they were flying too erratically in a zigzag style. As he squinted into the light, he noticed something extremely strange. None of these jets had tails. Maybe the tails were camouflaged, but he'd never heard of a camouflage like this. They were semicircular in shape, disks. One, the leader of the formation, was a darker shade than the others. Knowing the distance between Mount Rainier, where he was, and Mount Adams, where the lights were headed, he could calculate just how fast these objects were moving. They made the distance in one minute and 42 seconds. That was 50 miles in under two minutes. Impossible. And then they vanished. Just as quick as they'd come into Kenneth Arnold's sight, they were gone. Arnold tried to refocus and continue his search for the missing C-46, but it was impossible not to think about the incredibly fast-moving objects. He needed to get back to the ground and tell someone. When he landed in Yakima, he went straight to the airport manager. To Arnold's relief, the manager didn't think he was crazy. Instead, he began radioing other pilots in the area. One of them said it sounded like a guided missile test. Guided missiles made sense. It was 1947. Perhaps the government was experimenting with new weapons to use against the Russians. Arnold felt the frantic excitement drain out of him, his habitual calm returning. But the speed of the objects lingered in his mind as he flew back to work in Pendleton, Oregon. Once there, he discussed what he'd seen with his pilot friends. Reporters started arriving to ask for his story. Arnold was happy to oblige. Even if the objects were missiles, which they probably were, it was still exciting to see something travel that fast in the air. But Arnold wasn't the only one who was stuck on the purported speed of these objects. It just didn't seem possible. Arnold admitted that his mathematics were lousy and asked other pilots to review his calculations. Maybe he overestimated the distance between the peaks of Rainier and Adams. They decided to calculate from the base of each mountain. The new distance was 39.8 miles, which indeed meant that the strange lights had traveled at an unheard of speed. 1,200 miles per hour, in fact. None of them could believe it. That was 500 miles per hour faster than the speed of sound. No human had flown that fast before. The next day, June 25th, 1947, the East Oregonian ran Arnold's story with the following headline, Impossible? Maybe, but seeing is believing, says Flyer. Based on Arnold's description, reporter Bill Beckett wrote that the objects flew like a saucer would if you skipped it across the water. In no time at all, the term flying saucer was born. In the weeks that followed, newspapers ran stories of flying saucer sightings all over the continental United States. Many of them fit Arnold's description, but Arnold was dubious of the wild theories that accompanied many of these sightings. He was pragmatic as always. However, on July 5th, while Arnold was refueling his plane in Seattle, a couple of pilots told him that Captain Emil J. Smith had had a sighting of his own the night before. While Arnold had never met Smith in person, he knew the name. Smith was a commercial pilot with United Airlines, and Arnold considered him the most highly thought of and respected veteran pilot that flies the airlines. 
his story was worth paying attention to. Arnold asked the pilots to elaborate. On July 4th, 1947, 10 minutes after his UA-105 took off from Boise, Smith and his co-pilot noticed five disks flying in an odd formation in front of them. They called in a stewardess and asked her to confirm what they were seeing. Within seconds, she exclaimed that she could see flying disks. The five disks then took off at an incredible speed, only for four more disks to appear and then disappear. Everyone in the cockpit was speechless. Hearing this story excited Arnold. Given Smith's status and the fact that the flight crew also saw the saucers, the story seemed credible. Unlike Arnold, Smith didn't think the flying objects were missiles. Eventually, the two men met in person and were able to confirm the details of their two sightings. After that, the letters began pouring in. On July 15, 1947, Arnold received a letter from Amazing Stories editor Ray Palmer. The contents of this specific letter are unclear. All Arnold says in his memoir was that it had a tone of softness and sincere interest that appealed to me. Arnold decided to respond to this Mr. Palmer. A week later, Arnold received another letter from Palmer, but this one he found a little odd. Palmer shared the story of Harold Dahl and Fred Chrisman, two men who claimed to have seen several flying objects at Maury Island on June 21st. One of the objects ejected some kind of black material that the two men later recovered from the water. Palmer offered Arnold $200 to investigate Harold and Fred's claims. He also wanted Arnold to obtain some samples of the fragments. Arnold was conflicted about the request. Yes, he had seen UFOs and spoken to one other witness, but that hardly made him a qualified UFO investigator. Why him? On top of that, there was something distasteful about investigating the claim for money. If these men truly saw what they saw, then he didn't want to profit off of their trauma. But again, he was a skeptic, and the story sounded outlandish. Ultimately, he put the letter aside and decided to think on it. That same day, Arnold was visited by two Air Force intelligence officers, Lieutenant Frank Brown and Captain William Davidson. Arnold was elated. Military intelligence needed to know the details of his sighting. Brown and Davidson admitted that they hadn't a clue as to what the flying saucers were, but for the last several weeks, they had kept their eyes on the sky hoping to see a saucer themselves. The hysteria of all of these sudden saucer sightings was disturbing. The meeting lasted all night. Arnold related the facts of what he saw and even drew illustrations. He failed to mention that the formation leader was a darker shade than the other UFOs. This was a small detail, but it would come back to haunt him later. At the end of the meeting, Davidson and Brown told Arnold that if he came across anything else strange or unusual, he should call them. They also advised that Arnold stop speaking about his sightings with outsiders. This caught him off guard, but he slowly nodded in agreement. Were they hiding something? It's possible that their odd behavior ignited Arnold's curiosity further, driving him to reconsider Ray Palmer's offer to investigate the Maury Island sighting. 
What if there was a larger conspiracy at play, and Arnold had only just begun to unravel it? It still felt odd that someone would offer him $200, worth about $2,200 today, to go and investigate a UFO claim. He asked a friend, a reporter who had been covering UFO sightings, if it was distasteful to accept money for the job. The friend told Arnold that he would be crazy not to take it. Who knows? Maybe the fragments could connect to Arnold's sighting and lend credence to his claims. Still conflicted, Arnold tested the seriousness of Palmer's offer and asked him to wire him the money. Palmer did so right away. Arnold was impressed, but he also knew that by taking the money, he had just accepted the job. He was apprehensive. Would these men prove to be fellow UFO witnesses or complete and total crackpots? The investigation would have far more twists and turns than he could ever imagine. Coming up, Arnold begins his investigation into the strange sighting at Maury Island. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In late July 1947, Kenneth Arnold, the man who had made waves for claiming to have seen saucer-like objects flying around Mount Rainier, agreed to investigate the UFO sightings of Harold Dahl and Fred Chrisman at Maury Island. At 5.30 a.m. on Tuesday, July 29th, Arnold packed his bags and left Boise for Tacoma. He didn't tell anyone when he was going, except his wife, Doris. Arnold made sure to keep the details of his mission a secret. He didn't want to be hounded by the press. On his way out, he grabbed a couple of recent newspaper clippings about UFO sightings and shoved them in his coat pocket. Arnold got into Tacoma around dusk. The coastal metropolis was on the decline, decaying after years of organized crime pushed families into the suburbs. Shipyards, factories, and railroads marred the natural beauty of the region and filled the sky with smoke. This pollution mixed with the marine layer above the city and cast a pall over the entire population. It felt like a ghost town, a place where people got in, conducted their business, and got out. Arnold cursed himself as he realized he hadn't made arrangements for a hotel. After several failed attempts to get a room in town, he decided to call the upscale Winthrop Hotel on the off chance that he could get a discounted room. To Arnold's shock, the front desk told him that they already had a reservation under his name, ready and waiting. Had Palmer arranged this? If so, why didn't he say anything? Despite himself, a cold chill began to creep up Arnold's spine. He searched his brain for some kind of reasonable explanation. Perhaps, by sheer coincidence, there was an entirely different Kenneth Arnold on his way to the hotel at that very moment. He debated whether or not he should take this other Kenneth Arnold's room. Desperate and without a place to stay, he decided to go for it. 
Arriving at the hotel, he found it even more luxurious than he had pictured. Left over from a time before the Great Depression, it featured marble floors, fine wood paneling, and a ballroom replete with chandeliers. The concierge welcomed him and gave him the key to room 502. Later that night, as Arnold drew himself a bath, he scoured the phone book for Harold Dahl's name. He found a listing for one H.A. Dahl and dialed the number. Miraculously, it was the correct Dahl. Harold, however, sounded skittish. He refused to discuss what he had seen at Maury Island and told Arnold to just go back home. But Arnold didn't let up. For 30 minutes, he tried to convince Harold that his interest in the Maury Island story was genuine. But Harold was still suspicious and hung up. Arnold wasn't ready to quit. He planned on trying again the next day. For now, he was going to eat some dinner and get some shut-eye. Arnold's eyes popped open as he heard a sudden knock at the door. When he answered, he was surprised to see a 200-pound, six-foot-tall lumberjack in front of him, with the same timid voice he'd just heard on the phone. This, apparently, was Harold Dahl. Upon entering the hotel room, Harold once again told Arnold that he should just give up. This whole business with flying saucers was too complicated for anyone to understand. It would be better if Arnold let it alone. Arnold could hear the sincerity in Harold's voice. Something had shaken him. Strange. Arnold had felt a sense of confusion after seeing his flying saucers, but not terror. He needed to know what Harold saw. He kept insisting. After a brief silence, Harold nodded and sat down. And with a deep breath, he began to tell Arnold what occurred a month earlier, on June 21st, 1947. Harold Dahl, his son Charles, their dog, and two members of his crew were searching for fallen timber near Maury Island in the Puget Sound. At around 2 p.m., they were suddenly blinded by an incredible light and found themselves gazing at six donut-shaped flying objects above them. The donuts were about 100 feet in diameter and, in Harold's words, the color of shell-like gold and silver shining in a variety of ways, like a Buick dashboard. Circular portholes were spaced around the sides of the saucers and there were dark, observation-like windows on the bottom and inside the donut. Five of the ships orbited around the sixth. The sixth one, Harold thought, looked as if it were in trouble because it was quickly losing altitude. The other five kept their distance as if in anticipation. Harold rushed back into the boat's wheelhouse and grabbed his camera. He managed to take about three or four pictures. When the sixth flying object was about 500 feet from Harold's boat, it stopped. Harold stared, frozen, unable to look away. After five minutes, one of the other five objects broke with the others and levitated towards the sixth. All of a sudden, the center object began to discharge something that looked, at first, like newspaper. As it got closer to Harold, though, he realized that it was some kind of lightweight white metal. After newspaper-like metal, the saucer spewed a heavy black substance. 
This black substance, according to Harold, looked similar to lava rock. As it hit the water, steam immediately rose. The men on the boat ran for cover, dodging the downpour. Not everyone made it to safety. A sudden scream caught Harold's attention. He turned and saw his son Charles grasping his arm with a look of agony on his face. One of the fragments had hit Charles and severely burned him. Harold couldn't remember how long the storm lasted. When the saucer finally finished, he estimated that 20 tons of the substance had fallen into the water. And then the saucer flew into space, the five others quickly following suit. As Harold was looking at the damage done to his boat, he saw that his dog had been struck by a fragment and died. Without a word between them, he and his crew gave the dog a burial at sea. They retrieved some of the fragments, which they started calling slag. Then they rushed Charles to the hospital. After taking Charles to the hospital in Tacoma, Harold went to see Fred Chrisman. Fred immediately thought Harold was drunk and didn't believe a word he was saying. But then Harold produced his camera and told him that he had taken some pictures. Fred, still finding the whole thing ridiculous, told Harold that he'd go down to the water and take a look at these fragments. Back in room 502, Arnold sat, stunned at what he had just heard. More and more, his own flying saucer experience seemed tiny compared to these other stories. But then he noticed that Harold looked sick. Something was amiss. He asked him if he was okay, but it was clear that he wasn't. Harold's story wasn't over. The morning after his sighting on June 22, 1947, Harold answered his front door to find a man in a black suit, maybe 40 years old. Harold assumed the man was interested in purchasing some of his salvage lumber. It wasn't uncommon to conduct business at such early hours. The man in black asked Harold to breakfast, and Harold, believing he was in the midst of a business deal, accepted. They drove separately, with Harold following the man's black 1947 Buick. As they continued to drive, Harold suddenly started to doubt his read on the situation. The man was leading Harold away from the docks. Normally, loggers and salvagers keep business close to their boats. Why were they heading uptown? Once they got to the diner, the man in black launched into a monologue. He recounted the previous day's events in great detail. He knew the exact description of the flying objects, of the black substance discharged into the water, and even of the newspaper-like white metal. Harold was stunned. How in the world did this stranger know exactly what he and his crew saw? Was he there too? But there were no other boats on the water. Could this man have been aboard one of the UFOs? Harold stared at the man, speechless. The man then leaned in and in a flat, quiet voice said to Harold, What I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe. He followed this by saying that if Harold cared about the welfare of his family, he would be wise to keep quiet. It took everything in Harold not to burst into laughter. 
he was trying to play it cool, he would regret it. After breakfast, Harold returned to work. He openly talked to his co-workers about what he and his crew saw the day before. But then, a few days later, Harold's wife became suddenly ill. Then Charles, having returned from the hospital, suddenly vanished. Finally, a large tide caused a collection of Harold's salvaged timber to wash away. He began to wonder if maybe the man in black was somehow responsible. Was he being punished? Arnold wrote in his memoir, This story was the wildest thing I had ever listened to, and still, as far as I could tell, he was deadly earnest about every part of it. After a long silence, Harold suggested that they go to his secretary's house. Harold had given her some of the black fragments to hold on to for him. Arnold immediately accepted. And as they drove in Harold's car, his mind was racing a mile a minute, trying to process how all these stories might be connected. Were these donut-shaped craft the same disks he had seen in the sky? He wanted to believe Harold completely. What did Harold have to gain from lying about something so incredible? But the nuts and bolts realist in Arnold told him to be cautious and to keep his guard up. He knew, as a first-time investigator, that it would be important to keep a note of everything in case Harold was lying. Arnold memorized each turn, street, and avenue leading to the house. It took them 10 minutes to get there. The house had chipped paint and a front porch with rickety, spindle-like pillars. The front door was mahogany with an oblong doorknob. As they entered, Arnold observed his surroundings. A piano near the door, a radio by a window with the antenna going up the wall. Harold introduced Arnold to his secretary before leading Arnold into the front room to see the black fragment. Arnold picked it up. He stared at it, shocked. Was this a joke? This seemed like nothing more than a piece of lava rock. Harold objected, saying that 20 tons of the stuff dropped into the water and damaged his boat. He also said that Fred Chrisman had the white metal in boxes in his garage, and he'd be more than happy to show Arnold right away. But Arnold was exhausted. It had been a long day, and he was ready for bed. Instead, they planned to go see Fred the following morning. As his head hit the pillow, Arnold reflected on Harold's tail. The so-called slag agitated him. It looked like only lava rocks. But Harold's story seemed genuine. Perhaps this Fred Chrisman could provide further evidence. Arnold had no idea that his investigation was about to take a deadly turn. Coming up, Arnold hears Fred Chrisman's flying saucer tale and military intelligence is called in for backup. Now back to the story. After listening to Harold Dahl's UFO and Man in Black stories on July 29th, 1947, Kenneth Arnold felt conflicted. Harold seemed genuine, but his only evidence, a piece of black slag, appeared to be nothing more than lava rock. Perhaps a meeting with Harold's friend, Fred Chrisman, who also claimed to have seen a flying saucer, would clarify things. Arnold woke the next morning at around 9.30 a.m. to Harold and Fred pounding on his door. 
According to Arnold, Fred was a short, stocky fellow, dark-complexioned, a happy-go-lucky appearing person, very cheerful and extremely alert. He let the two men in, and Fred, in his gregarious way, immediately launched into his story. When Harold returned to the dock on June 21st, claiming to have seen six donut-shaped flying objects, Fred thought he was drunk. He inspected Harold's boat and concluded that drunk driving was responsible for the damage. But to calm Harold down, Fred promised to go to Maury Island and see for himself about these black fragments in the water. While Harold was having breakfast with the mysterious man in black, Fred made good on his promise. He went to Maury Island and investigated Harold's wild claim. And when he arrived, he was shocked to discover the black and white fragments in the water and along the beach. Harold was right about these, at least. Then, a large shadow crept up in front of Fred. He slowly looked up, a cold shiver running down his spine. He was face to face with one of the donut-shaped flying objects. It briefly circled around him before quickly disappearing into the sky. As Arnold listened, he noticed a difference between Fred and Harold's styles of storytelling. Harold was reluctant, like a man who wanted to say as little as possible. But Fred, Fred was a talker. He sounded like he was trying to sell something. But his story was compelling. As Fred finished, Arnold pulled his stack of newspaper clippings on saucer sightings. He quickly shuffled through, scanning the headlines. And there it was. Another man had discovered lava ash falling from the sky. He had sent the pieces into a lab for testing. If these samples were similar to Harold and Fred's, if they weren't just lava rock, then they could prove that the slag might really be from outer space. Arnold called his friend Captain Smith. He needed backup, someone to help him sift through fact and fiction. And Smith, who had a UFO experience of his own, seemed like the perfect partner on this investigation. When Arnold explained the situation, Smith said yes without hesitation. As soon as Smith pulled up to the hotel that afternoon, Arnold caught him up to speed. He had his doubts about some aspects of Harold and Fred's stories, but he wasn't ready to make a judgment. Smith promised to be discreet. They made plans to meet with Harold and Fred the next day and do a full review of all the evidence. The slag, the white metal, the boat, the photographs, everything. And then they settled into bed. But just as Arnold and Smith were on the verge of falling asleep, they were awoken by the telephone. Arnold answered. Ted Morello, a reporter with the United Press, was on the line. Arnold tried to hang up. It was the middle of the night. But Ted was frantic. He told Arnold about how some crackpot had been calling his office all day, telling them what was happening in room 502, where Arnold and Smith had been all afternoon. Stunned, Arnold handed the phone to Smith. Smith, too, was dumbfounded, especially when Ted was able to quote verbatim what had been said in the room. Something was amiss. Who could be listening in on them? The Soviets, perhaps? The relationship between the two countries had grown cold since the end of World War II. 
it was possible that the USSR was spying on them. When they got off the phone with Morello, both men were visibly shaken. For the next hour, the two tore the room apart, searching for bugs or listening devices. But they couldn't find anything. They'd have to speak in whispers moving forward. The next day, July 31st, Fred and Harold returned to room 502 to talk with Arnold, this time with handfuls of the slag fragments from Fred's garage, and finally, the white newspaper-looking metal. Upon further inspection, the dark, brass-colored slag, which was clearly a lava-like substance, was smooth and curved on one side. The other side looked like it had been subjected to terrific heat. The fragments were quite heavy, and when they lined them up on the curvy, smooth side, it appeared as if they could have been the lining of a tube of some kind, about six feet in diameter. A tube from a spacecraft, perhaps? Next, Arnold and Smith studied the white metal that Harold said floated down like newspaper. Immediately, both men believed it was fake, nothing more than aluminum. They had seen this kind of metal hundreds of times at army surplus dumps, but neither of them voiced their suspicions to Harold and Fred. One thing about the white metal that did seem odd to Arnold were the small rivets along the side. He noticed that unlike typical round rivets on an aircraft, these rivets were long and square. Next, they were ready to see Harold's photographs. But Fred looked at the others sheepishly and said that while he was grabbing the boxes of slag, he had been unable to find them. He was certain, though, that they were in his office. He would go later that day to grab them. Arnold, with a raised brow, accepted the explanation. It was around this time that Arnold thought it would be a good idea to call his military intelligence friends, Lieutenant Brown and Captain Davidson. They had said to call on them if he needed help with anything strange. Perhaps they could rule definitively on whether Harold and Fred were telling the truth. He made the call to Hamilton Field, California, and caught Brown up to speed. Brown responded by saying if he didn't call back within the hour, then he and Davidson were on their way. And so all four men waited and waited and waited. Arnold and Harold talked about fishing while Fred and Smith discussed airplanes. At one point, Ted Morello, the reporter, called again. The mysterious informant had called Ted again about the goings-on in room 502. Ted wanted information on this mysterious caller, as if Arnold would know the informant's identity. But Arnold had no clue. As he hung up, a chill ran down his spine. Who was listening, and why were they leaking the story? A few minutes after Arnold hung up on Morello, another reporter, Paul Lance, called and asked for an interview. They declined again. Brown and Davidson finally arrived in the late afternoon. Privately, Davidson showed Arnold a drawing of a flying saucer. But it didn't look like the one that Arnold had told everyone about. No, this was a drawing of that darker, differently shaped saucer Arnold had kept to himself. Arnold was shocked. Who gave this to them? 
They explained that a few days earlier, someone in Phoenix saw a flying saucer and took pictures. The drawing was a replica of those pictures. The negatives were on their way to Hamilton Field. Arnold finally confessed that he was familiar with the look of the drawing. Pleased with this confirmation, the officers invited Arnold to look at the real pictures at Hamilton Field whenever he wanted. But first, it was time for Brown and Davidson to interview Harold and Fred. They studied the slag fragments as they listened. Arnold watched the officers for their reactions. With each passing minute, the interest in their eyes began to fade. Arnold's excitement began to fade as well. Perhaps he had been overzealous. Perhaps both Harold and Fred were frauds. As Harold and Fred finished their stories, the two officers expressed clear disappointment. It was close to midnight. Two and a half hours had passed, and the time spent was not worth it. Brown and Davidson stood up and announced they were heading back to California at once. They had everything they needed. The others protested. Fred rushed out to get an additional box of the black slag for the officers to take with them. Arnold, embarrassed that he'd wasted their time and desperate to save face, tried to convince the two military men to stay the night and leave in the morning. But they couldn't stay. The B-25 bomber they flew in on needed to be back at Hamilton Field in the morning for Air Force Day. Arnold was more than dismayed, but he wasn't quite ready to give up. Fred returned with a Kellogg's box full of the slag. As Arnold helped load it into Brown and Davidson's car, he noticed the slag appeared more rocky and less metallic than the previous batch. Arnold found it odd, but Brown and Davidson promised to have it analyzed. They would cover all their bases, they assured him. After saying goodbye to the two officers, Arnold, Smith, and Fred went for coffee and donuts before they all separated for the night. Once Arnold and Smith returned to the hotel, ready to finally catch some sleep, the phone rang. It was Ted Morello. The informant knew about the meeting with Brown and Davidson. Neither Arnold nor Smith gave Ted a response. The whole thing was strange, and they knew it but they couldn't find a bug or a wire in the hotel room. The only explanation was that there was a receiver a block or two from the hotel. That was a problem for tomorrow. Exhausted, Arnold and Smith shut the lights off and fell asleep. For the first time in two days, Arnold wasn't awakened by the sound of pounding on the door. It was a nice change. But he wasn't free of the ringing phone. Around 9.30 a.m., it sounded once again. Arnold answered, expecting it to be Ted or Davidson or Brown. Instead, it was Fred. He sounded frantic. He said, Did you hear over the radio that a B-25 exploded and crashed 20 minutes after takeoff from McCord Field at 1.30 this morning? I think you and I know who was aboard that plane. Arnold's jaw dropped. A chill ran up his spine. Impossible. Did Fred Chrisman just tell him that Brown and Davidson were dead?
Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. For more information on the Maury Island incident, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Coming of the Saucers by Kenneth Arnold and Raymond Palmer extremely helpful in our research. Next week, we'll explore the aftermath of the B-25 bomber crash and how Arnold's strange investigation into Maury Island only got stranger. You can find all previous episodes of Extraterrestrial, as well as ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Extraterrestrial was written by Joe Guerra and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. 